You are listening to the Catholic Recon Podcast, testimonies from Catholic reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Don't forget to leave a review and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon Testimonies from Reverts and Converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to like, comment. These videos air every Tuesday at 3 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. This week's guest is Jeremy Rivera. Jeremy, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Eddie. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So (laughs) Jeremy and I... uh, we hit it off a few months ago. He runs a marketing agency in Colorado, just for everyone to know that. It's called Little J. They do phenomenal work. And what was cool about Jeremy is his connection to the Bay Area in California. So he mentioned uh, Palo Alto, Atherton. I used to live in Palo Alto, just bringing up some fond memories. And then he mentioned that he at one point attended Menlo Park Presbyterian. I know he's going to get into that in his testimony. But that, that church I attended when I was 14 through 17, just anytime I'd come up to visit my grandparents, they would take me to Menlo Park Presbyterian. So uh, it's just funny, such a small world. And anyway, Jeremy shared a portion of his story and I was really, uh, really floored by it. So Jeremy, the floor is yours. I look forward to hearing this. And I, and I know that many, many folks are going to enjoy it as well. Well, thanks so much, Eddie, and feel free to interject at any point with uh, any questions or anything. But uh, you know, it's it's always uh, it's always kind of like a a pause when someone says, "Well, what's your story?" You know, or "Tell me your testimony," because you kind of don't know where to start because <laughs> it feels very long, right? And you don't want to you want to don't want to bore people. But um, like like so many reverts, you know, I grew up um, I grew up in. I would say kind of nominally in the Catholic faith. My mom was Catholic. My dad wasn't. Um, Parents divorced around eight years old. But, you know, I think most kids, maybe Catholic and non-Catholic, could say there were these defining moments in their childhood where they had these kind of brushes with God, these encounters with God that planted some deep seeds. You know, it wasn't lived out on a daily or talked about on a daily basis, weekly basis, anything like that. Besides, you know, God bless my mom enforcing that my brother and I go to mass on Sundays, despite our best attempts to sleep in or watch football or, you know, we were there and um, she probably couldn't articulate why the church taught what the church teaches or anything like that. But she made sure that we, you know, we said our prayers, she taught us the, our father, those types of things growing up. And so, um, you know, there were a few, you know, and I'll go into a couple of details. There were a few, a couple of occasions where, those defining moments happened. My probably my my first was um, when my parents divorced, and it became it came as a surprise to me at about seven years old. And I grew up kind of in an impoverished neighborhood, you know, kind of the bad side of town in North Denver. And I remember, you know, as a seven year old, you don't know that growing up that you live in a kind of a seedy part of town. Um, but I just remember everything changing so quickly and we were moving out of the house that day. My mom, my brother and I, I was sitting on the lawn with this kind of self-awareness, I think for a seven-year-old to know like I'm leaving and, you know, this has been my home. And I was kind of saying goodbye to my home and just feeling a great deal of sadness. And I really felt the Lord for the first time in my life, I sensed this presence, kind of just this, this sense of reassurance that God was going to be with me. 
that he, he knew my pain, he knew my, what I was going through. And I just had this sense that I, I wasn't alone wow. and that he was going to be with me and, and, and take care of me and that he, he acknowledged the pain that I was going through. And so um, that was probably the first, you know, conscious memory I have of God. Um, and it was kind of a foreshadowing because I would be in that place many times later in my life <laughs> of needing to hear that voice and needing to be aware of that presence. But another time when I was 10 years old, my mom had remarried, we moved kind of across town to Littleton, which was a much nicer part of town. And um, it was Christmas Eve, 1985. I was 10 years old. And I kind of remember it like it was yesterday. And we used to go to midnight mass on my mom loved midnight mass on Christmas Eve. And so we were getting ready for church. It was pretty late, you know, later than normal for a 10 year old. Yeah. And I was showering to get ready to go to church. And it was in the shower that I had this encounter with God, which sounds kind of bizarre, but I was in the shower and I just had this very strong premonition in my heart of faith of God saying, if you want, you can become my child. If you want, you can be my child tonight, right now. Like, <laughs> It was, it was crazy. And I just remember saying yes to God in the shower, which was really kind of a metaphor of baptism and cleansing. And you're kind of naked before God without any qualifying or fig leaves or, you know what yeah. I mean? It's just kind of loved as you are and, and not as you should be. Um, and yeah, that was, I really felt for the first time in my life consciously, even though I had been baptized and stuff, like the encounter of the Holy Spirit. And I was literally filled with joy. I was literally jumping up and down. And I ran up the stairs to find my mom. And she said, what's gotten into you? That's literally what she said. She said, what's gotten into you? And I said, I don't know. I just feel God in my heart. Wow. And she just said, wow, that's the Holy Spirit. And she had had this crucifix that's currently in my house now in my kitchen. This handmade, like hand-painted crucifix from Italy or something under her bed. And she was planning on giving it to me the next day for Christmas. But she said, this is such a special occasion. I just want to give this to you now. And so she reached under her bed where she was hiding my gifts and she handed me this crucifix and it was powerful and beautiful. And, and there was a bond there, right? So these are those seeds that were planted again, wasn't, you know, real catechized, didn't really talk about the faith too much. Yeah. Couldn't have told you anything about what the church teaches. And I think so many Catholics have that experience where there's these kind of like encounters here and there over four five six seven years because it probably wasn't until um you know my freshman year in college when i would have another powerful encounter with god and so grew up catholic you know went through our, went through ccd classes um and actually my junior year of high school i was in rcia with everyone else you know con confirmation classes sure. yeah and I had had some Protestant friends and I had, had some pretty deep conversations with them about faith in God. One was a Mormon, one was a Protestant, you know, you have buddies that spend the night, you know, at a sleepover, you know, your first sleepover when you're 10 or 11 or 12. And I remember one particular friend and we talked all night about God and just, I'll never forget that. And, um, he, his, his dad was a pretty well-educated Protestant guy who would, who would, I think, asked me challenging questions about Catholics and about Mary and about different things. And he kind of planted some seeds of doubt and some suspicion. Um, and so I carried that being a bit of a contrarian by nature. <laughs> I'm kind of a maverick that way, you know, just kind of the, maybe the elbow in the body of Christ. <laughs> and um, 
I would bring those questions to my junior year confirmation classes. And I started asking very tough questions to the teachers. And, you know, I didn't want to just like drink the Kool-Aid. I wanted to yeah. believe, you know, I really wanted to know what I was being asked to believe in and didn't want to just do it for my mom. And so, you know, and there was probably definitely an edge of snarkiness in there of, at that age, do we worship Mary? You know, yeah, I'm 17, you know, 16 or 17. And, and uh, I ended up getting held back or kicked out of the confirmation class. They basically told my mom that I was asking too many, too many difficult questions or being too difficult in class. And that they felt like I needed another lap another year before I would be confirmed. And so um she was very disappointed. And then at the end of the day, it was just my mom kind of begging me saying, okay, we're going to go through it your senior year. Don't cause any problems. Just be quiet. <laughs> we need you to get confirmed. You know, and I'm like, okay, fine. So I just kind of, kind of did that and ended up getting confirmed at Light of the World Parish in Middleton, Colorado. And, um, you know, went to, uh, went off to CU Boulder, University of Colorado in Boulder my freshman year really unequipped you know i mean a place like boulder which is known to be kind of a party town um being a very insecure young man you know i think from my parents divorce and a lot of that just had an older brother one sibling who i looked up to a lot he was very insecure as well so there was a lot of emphasis on externals how do you dress how do you look who are you dating who are your friends you know so my whole world became wanting to be liked wanting to be admired wanting to be affirmed by people and that's where i found my value and so as I headed up to Boulder, um, one of the first things I did was find out who's the coolest fraternity up here, who parties with the hottest chicks, who gets good grades and who wins all the sports. And that was the Pike House. Those were the Pikes at CU. And I had heard that from other people like, oh, that's kind of like the creme de la creme of all the houses up here. You know, they have money, they get great grades, they don't do a lot of drugs, but they party. And, you know, I just felt like that's, that's the house for me. And that was really the only house I rushed. And so I, I did that and got the bid, you know, and um, went that first semester as a, as a pledge. And then I got, you know, accepted in the fraternity. And I mean, right away, it was just because of that need for affirmation had, was very promiscuous right away. You know, there was just no sense of conviction about it. There had been in high school where I had had some sexual experience, not a lot, but definitely like the first time a lot of guilt lot of remorse I actually shed tears the first time I lost my virginity um because of those seeds I, I had the sense of knowing I'd given away something pretty sacred um but over time right those things tend to go away as you grow up and more and more peer pressure of like hey you're supposed to want this you know this is okay and so by the time I was a freshman it was more like a goal like you know a goal to go out this is my time to to have fun and um, you know, and so I did that my freshman year and in God's mercy and love, he allowed me to get a girl pregnant my freshman year. And, um, and so that immediately brought everything to a screeching halt. Um, right before I turned 19 years old, here I was in the situation where, you know, I had a kind of a casual sexual encounter with a woman that I didn't really know, met at a party <clears throat> and, uh, got that call 30 days later, I'm, I'm pregnant, you know? And it's like, what do you do? And everything just kind of hit the fan. It was just, you know, everything felt like it was in slow motion. And the first thing I did was I need to get to church. 
and I went the next Sunday to mass at St. Thomas Aquinas in Boulder. And unfortunately, they didn't have focus back then, missionaries. They didn't have a whole lot of resources, and the priest was busy because I, I went to mass, and I tried to talk to him afterwards. And I just got kind of one of those, come, come talk to me this week. I'm really busy right now. I can't talk to you right now. Yeah. And I'm in a panic. You know what I mean? I am in an absolute panic. I'm thinking my life is over, right? When you're in a crisis. Um, and so I remember walking from St. Thomas Aquinas. It was, again, that that premonition, that sense of God being with me saying, I'm not going to leave you hanging. Like, I'm with you. It's okay. I'm going to get you through this. And, and uh, almost a sense that, hey, if, if my church isn't going to be there for you, I know people who will. And Protestants started coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> I mean, they just started, like, it was like, you couldn't make this stuff up. Like, I went to the gym to work out, and there was a guy who started sharing Christ with me and witnessing to his faith. Yeah. There was a kid in my sociology class who testified in front of the whole class, and he said, I'm a Christian. If anybody wants to talk about Christ or, or faith afterwards, I'm going to stick around. And I did. I waited to talk to him, and he invited me to a Bible study. Um, they just kind of came out of the woodwork because evangelical Protestants are just better at that than Catholics. They have more awareness of, we need to be sharing this. There are people hurting right now in this moment today, and they can't wait a month or two months or three yeah. months. You know, they need the gospel now, you know? And so I thank God for them and, um, and for those, those people. And, uh, and so, you know, I ended up calling my mom shortly after finding out <clears throat> and in a panic, I mean, I was, I was really stressed. I was kind of breaking out into hives at times. So I was so worried. And, you know, you hear about women's intuition, you know, and uh, my mom knew that I got to go pregnant before I even told her <laughs> like, mom, I got to talk to you about something. She goes, you got to go pregnant. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yes, that was it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's like, I'm coming up to Boulder. I'm going to take you to lunch, you know, and she took me to lunch and she just sat me down and said, you know, Jerry, we're Catholic and we don't do abortion, you know? And um, she said, there's, there's other ways around this and alternatives. And so, you know, that was, uh, that still wasn't convincing to me though. Cause I just had too much stubbornness and, and, and the common sense in my mind, the rational mind is, dude, you can't have a kid at 19, you know, let's be practical here. And so I went ahead and scheduled an abortion with the woman and um, still really hurting and, and seeking God and praying in my dorm room, you know, for, for direction and help. And that one guy who had invited me to the Bible study, I started attending with him and I went to a Bible study and I'm in the midst of the crisis. The girl is still pregnant, hasn't had the abortion. And we were reading Romans chapter five. And I don't know how or why or who showed it to me or, but it was the Holy spirit and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It, I read that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Like it talks about how God has shown his love, you know, his love has shown and poured out through in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And basically says, and this is how God shows his love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And I really camped out on that. It just, it, like the Lord wouldn't let me move past that verse. And it hit me and it really was like this imagery of like, while I was out wandering the back roads, he was preparing for me at home. And that idea of like prevenient grace and that love that went before my repentance is yeah. absolutely what shattered me. 
And I remember just my eyes filled up with tears. I started to like sob and heave. And I was just literally a puddle of snot and tears on the ground. I mean, I was wailing of just sadness and conviction and sorrow for my sins. And, you know, um, there were several women, you know, before that had happened. So it just, all of this kind of came to a head of how I was living, drinking and smoking pot and just, you know, just kind of experimenting with everything. And, um, in that moment though, it was an encounter with, with God's love in a way I'd never experienced it before. And so I remember just, you know, kind of being picked up the pieces, you know, were being picked up and, and, um, unfortunately like that group was very anti-catholic they were very anti-religion or institutional religion it was like they're going to put the cart before the horse and give you everything but what you really need and so they kind of kicked out the catholic foundation from under me in saying you just need to focus on your relationship with jesus and scripture and get to know him and read the bible and so i would consider that my born again experience you know i really felt the scales fall off my eyes that night and if you asked any of my friends or fraternity brothers or my roommate, they will say Jeremy was one way, one day, and completely different the next, like an absolute 180. And uh, I, I really resonate with that story in the scriptures about the man who was born blind, who Jesus healed, you know, and, and they bring him in and question him and bring in his parents. And they're trying to figure out, oh, were you really born blind? You know, and he's right. like, at the end of the day, they're like, well, don't you know he's a sinner, this man who, who healed you? And he says, I don't know if he was a sinner or not. All I know is that I was blind and now I can see. And you really can't argue with the power of a changed life. And my life was a 180 change. Literally, it was just amazing. I started reading the Bible two hours a day, listening to Chuck Smith and Charles Swindoll and Charles Stanley on the radio for probably three hours a day. Uh, I was missing class because I was just absorbed in the word and in fellowship. Uh, literally like daily Bible studies and you know, just, just, I felt like so behind so much to learn. I, my eyes were like a newborns, you know, in the faith and immediately stopped going to Catholic faith, started going to these Protestant services. And, and, uh, and so where, uh, where, if you don't mind me asking, I older, you know, you know, what's interesting about that. And I don't usually yeah. talk about this much in detail because it was such a short time, but the group that, that was the most instrumental was actually like a cult in boulder called the boulder church of christ okay they started out as the boston church of christ and they spread around the country but they were very focused on water baptism is what actually saves you okay and it's water baptism in their church in their church specifically <laughs> in their church specifically. was it was was it trinitarian yeah it was trinitarian yep and i didn't know enough back then to go like oh you believe the yeah. Trinity, but, <laughs> right it was trinitarian yeah. um but just very controlling and very uh, manipulative, but it was what I needed. I needed someone knocking on my door on Wednesday. Like you're not at midweek service. Are you coming? Like they would literally come to my dorm and knock on the door. Um, so accountability was huge, you know, like a lot of cults, they love bomb you and then they find out all about you. And then, you know, and I was so vulnerable going through that crisis and I told them what was going on and everything. So back to that story, um, long story short, uh, I, after this conversion, right, I called up the, the woman and begged her to talk to me about having the baby. And she did. And she talked to me and I had at one point convinced her to have the child. I think I was just as convincing as I could be and as confident as I could be that we can get through this to choose some other way other than abortion. Yeah. 
And um, at one point had had her convinced, but you know, she, she talked to her parents and they just convinced her otherwise. And she just told me she had to have the abortion. And so, you know, I kind of like felt like a Pontius Pilate moment of washing my hands. I'm like, I'm not going to pay for it. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to condone it at all. I've given you every other option. You have no financial obligations. My family's involved, like other than this option, you know, and she still chose to do that. And if I'm honest, like there was definitely some relief of being 19 and finding out I wasn't going to be a dad. But, you know, I know for a fact in my heart, like I had resolved with the Lord that I would go through that if she would have said yes to life. Um, so that was that was painful, as you can imagine, just probably at the time at 19, didn't know how to process those emotions, even sure. really to grasp what was going on. But But just, you know, having that, you know, experience certainly woke me up. And like I said, it was God's love to allow that to happen. Um, and so, you know, she had an abortion and ended up writing me this long letter afterwards. But um, as, as grace would have it, I was picked up from Boulder and moved to Hawaii the next year. <laughs> like last thing I deserved. Right. So as a, as a, middle school student my best friend my childhood best friend Troy um, we had always wanted to go to California or Hawaii or Hawaii and learn how to surf and go to college together because we we grew up in the same part of town our parents divorced around the same time our parents both moved on and remarried and we stayed really close in the Denver suburbs even though we never went to school together and so we always resolved that hey we're gonna go to school together when it's college and I was a year older so the plan was I'll go to see you for a year he'll graduate from high school and then we'll go to Hawaii together. Got it. And so he came up to Boulder and really held me accountable and said, if you let's apply, like, this is the plan, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So I applied to Hawaii Pacific and got in and all my credits transferred and he was going in as a freshman and we were roommates and moved, nice. to, moved to Honolulu and lived in Kailua on the windward side. And, you know, I'm 19, having gone through that experience, I'm totally white hot for God, you know? So I'm just, an evangelist, right? I think that's one of my spiritual gifts. So I'm just sharing my faith with, with everybody. I'm just so turned on to faith sharing and telling my story and giving my testimony. And probably a little too much at times, you know, as I look back, <laughs> probably burned some bridges, you know, but my heart was in the right place. And so, um, so Troy and I moved to Hawaii and I really feel like that was a very prodigal experience, you know, here a, a child dies and uh, I go through that and he puts me in paradise, you know, and it was a very, it was a lesson on learning how to receive from God, you know, sure. which yeah. for some people is more difficult than giving, you know, it's almost like easier to wash someone's feet and to have your feet be washed. And so I had to receive from the Lord blessings. And I mean, just grace upon grace that I didn't deserve, which is kind of what grace means, you know, unmerited favor, you know, that's right. And so um, he put me in Hawaii, you know, with, with Troy. And I got immediately connected with an amazing church called Hope Chapel. And it was pastored by a man named Ralph Moore. And uh, I'm sitting there in, in Kaneohe, Hawaii, and, and going to Ralph's services. Wonderful Bible teacher. Excellent guy. Just super real and, and knew how to break the word down. And they had these amazing worship leaders. So immediately I'm like, I want to learn how to play guitar like those guys, you know, because it wasn't like rock band. It had this Hawaiian influence almost tribal in a sense, drums, and, and they had a Friday night service 
that was kind of their young adult service. If you know, it was open to anyone, but I just started bringing busloads, literally, of people from my college to come to Church of Hope Chapel to experience it. And you can talk to people that I went to school with. I was just constantly sharing my faith with people and bringing people to church. And, you know, um, immediately was attracted to the pastors, you know, the leaders in my church and wanted to be like them. I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, you know, and so um, four years of school in Hawaii and I, and I had had an internship every year back in Colorado here in Denver downtown at the Federal Reserve Bank. So I studied business, always thought I wanted to be an investment banker, make a lot of money. And that was kind of my path. And so I worked at the Fed, which is a great foundation to learn how money works. And so, um, you know, fast forward the tape to my senior year and the Fed offered me this incredible job to come work for them full time because I'd interned with them all through college. And I remember uh, accepting the job because I'm like, wow, going into my senior year, I don't have to worry about finding a job. Yeah. You know, like I got a great job lined up. I can kind of coast and cruise and enjoy my senior year. And um, my senior year, we moved from, from Kailua to Honolulu, and I switched churches because of the move. And Troy had transferred from Hawaii Pacific to University of Hawaii in Manoa. So we moved, and I started going to New Hope Christian Fellowship, which at the time was a very small church and is now 15, 20,000 members, the largest church in Hawaii and has been for years. Wow. And so Pastor Wayne Cordero was there. And, you know, I, I remember this. So, you know, five, maybe five times in my life, I can tell you Eddie God was speaking to me, you know, and I've talked about a couple so far, and this would have been the third one. And I was surfing at Diamond Head with a buddy of mine, Matt Harden. I'm still friends with him today. He still lives in Hawaii. And it was just he and I, we went out surfing and, um, you know, this is again, one of those things you can't really explain. I feel like it was completely the Holy Spirit. And I'm out there in the water, just kind of contemplating my future. You know, it was a moment of reflection. I'm looking at the island from the water, just going, gosh, I'm going to miss this place, you know? And, and uh, I had this sense, it, like the, I was starting to ask questions, like, like the Lord was asking me, like, so you want to be an investment banker, huh? You know, and like, I'm like, yep. In my heart, I'm like, yep. <laughs> So you want to make an investment with your life? I'm like, uh-huh. He's like, well, why don't you invest it in things that are going to last? You know, I'm like, well, what's going to last? Well, I'm like trying to think. He's like, well, what lives forever? I'm like, well, you, God lives forever. And the word of God lives forever. I remember in Isaiah, it says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And I'm like, and people's souls live forever. And I just felt the Lord say, why don't you do that? God, people, and the word, you know, and I'm just like, you want to be a real investment banker, like do that. <laughs> you know? So I just had this moment of, um, I'm, I've always been a fan of poetry and, and Walt Whitman's one of my favorite poets. And there's this line in one of his poems that says, the powerful play of life goes on and you may contribute a verse, something like that. Yeah. The powerful play of life goes on and you may contribute a verse. And it was just this sense of, how finite I was, you know, King David writes in the Psalms, teach me to number my days, O Lord, you know, kind of live in light of my end, you know, and make it count. And St. Paul had that sense of urgency about, about his life. And, and so it's just kind of like, there's just this, like, almost this uh, scary question of what is your verse going to be to the play of life? You got one verse, don't waste it. And it was in that moment with all of those other thoughts about what's going to live forever that I figured it out. I'm like, I'm being called in the ministry. 
you know, <laughs> and I got so filled again and so excited. And I remember paddling in and my buddy, Matt was, I was out there a while and he's like, are you ready to go? You know, and I'm like, dude, something happened out there. I'm like, take me home. He's like, why? I said, I got to turn down my job at the bank that I had already accepted. So I went home and I made two phone calls. I called my mom and I, you know, first, and, and of course she was uh, not encouraging me to turn down my job because she's a mom. She's very commonsensical. She's you never turn down a job unless you have another one lined up. You know? Did she know why you were calling? <laughs> that <laughs> no, she didn't know this time, but I'm like, mom, Hey, I just need to tell you something. Like, yeah, I told her, I'm like, I had this powerful experience and I really feel like God's calling me into ministry and I'm going to not take that job at the Fed and I'm not coming home to Denver, you know? And I think she just was like, well, you know, <laughs> she's yeah. always just been so practical and common sense. We kind of fight about that. But, um, and then my next call, it was Tom, to Tom Bennett, the assistant vice president of the bank who had made me the job offer. And I'm like, Tom. And he's like, yeah, Jeremy, what's going on? You know, and I'm like, I don't really know how to tell you this, but I, I just, I can't take the job that I've already accepted. I need to kind of back out. And I'm so sorry, but. Uh, he's like, well, I don't understand. Like, uh, is it another offer? <laughs> I remember him saying, is it another offer? And I'm like, kind of. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think he was thinking like, are they offering you more money or, you know? Yeah. And I said, I said, I feel like God is calling me into ministry, Tom. And he's like, this long, awkward pause on the phone. And he's like, I can't really compete with that. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. I can't really compete with that. And I just never forget it. And so I, I just said, thank you so much. I wrote a letter to all the, the bank president and everyone for the internship over the years. And then I was free. You know, I'm like, oh, now I'm living my faith. I wonder what, what's going to happen. So the very next Sunday, I go to New Hope Christian Fellowship, Pastor Wayne. And um, I was just there early. I was helping set up the church because we actually met in, in an auditorium at the University of Hawaii and didn't have our own building or anything. And I remember Pastor Wayne after the service, he called me aside and he said, Jeremy, you know, I've been watching you and seeing you serve. And, and he said, you've got the right heart. And he said, you know, we want to offer you an internship here at the church. Oh, wow. And we will pay for you to go to graduate school and get your master's. We'll pay you enough to live on here in Hawaii, not a lot, but, and you'll just be an intern for the next couple of years until you get your master's. And I think that'll be a good step into ministry for you. And that was immediately like, the, the neon flashing door sign that I needed to walk through and God was leading me through. So I said, yes, you know, and so I graduated from Hawaii Pacific in 1997 and immediately went to work for New Hope. And I started out just serving, you know, and, and, and um, setting up the church, taking it down because we met in a high school auditorium, um, started doing junior high ministry with the junior high kids. And, you know, it was, it was definitely humbling, you know, having your degree and you're yeah. like, you're just unloading boxes. Yeah. It was very karate kid. He was testing me too. I know for a fact, Wayne was testing my heart. And I remember one time kind of cracking and getting mad and I didn't go to college for this, you know? And I remember him saying, if you can't like pick up a broom or if you can't unload a box for the people of God and be a servant, you have no business ever thinking you could lead them. And so it was super convicting. And he would always say the fastest way to the throne of God is through the servant's entrance. He's like, you've got to have a heart to serve. And so I needed that. It really broke me down. Um, but it was just such formative years for me there. And, and uh, eventually, um, you know, he, he released me to start a young adult ministry in Hawaii. And, and I did. And it was called The Bridge. And I just 
there's, you know, a great team of people, but we soon had four or 500 people involved every week. And funny enough, like where we met was at St. Francis school in their cafeteria. And it, again, so it's like this Catholic church thing kind of is like, haven't I seen this before? It kind of like keeps appearing over here in my mind's eye, but I'm not really paying attention to it. The fact that like every week I would pass this statue of St. Francis, not knowing anything about him, to meet in the Franciscan school, sharing the gospel, growing this group, doing music, you know, with, with all these young adults, bringing lots of people to Christ. Um, it was just kind of surreal when I look back over my journey and I actually see fingerprints of the Catholic church all over it, you know? And so um, started this thing in, in Hawaii, ran it for a couple of years. I'm now like 24 years old. And um, I get this call from Mendel Park Presbyterian Church out of the blue. And they're like, hey, we had some staff come to your service last week. We're really impressed. And we're like, this is just a, sh a shot in the dark. But we really want to start something similar here in the Bay Area with Stanford students and all the young people moving in. It was right around 1999. So the dot-com boom was taken off in Silicon Valley. And they're like, would you have any interest in moving to Northern California and working at Menlo Park Press? You know, and I'm just like kind of shocked. And, 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 and I had at that point, after five years, six years in Hawaii, felt like I wasn't supposed to be there long term. You can feel like island fever after a while. Like it's the most remote place, you know, the most remote islands in the world. And so um, I had had this sense that like God had had other plans that were bigger than Hawaii or whatever. I don't know. I just... And so I said, yeah, I'd love to come out and do an interview, you know? And so they flew me out for an interview to Menlo Prez and I met their staff and pastors. And, um, I told them, I said, hey, I'm not Presbyterian. You know, I'm not ordained Presbyterian, you know? And uh, they said, that's okay. Like you have a heart for Jesus and if you can lead people to Christ, that's all we care about. Yeah. And so um, I ended up accepting the job and it was really hard to leave Hawaii and the community that I had started there. Um, but I, I left and, and uh, in 1999, in September, I moved to Menlo Park. And, uh, you know, that was, a, that was an amazing, amazing time. So that's how, kind of how long were you there? How long were you in Menlo Park? I was there for five years. Okay. From 99 to 2004. That's so crazy. Yeah, I was, I was in Palo Alto from 2000 to 2003. Okay. It's so funny. We never crossed paths. At that right. Point. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. And so my, my last year in Hawaii, this is kind of an important part of my journey um, because everyone's been influenced by certain people. You know, if you're a musician, you've been inspired by certain artists and musicians, and, you know, kind of mentored. And I, I never met this person, but their, their life story I watched in the documentary and uh, his name was Rich Mullins. And he was a singer songwriter, you know, in the Christian music scene, he wrote, he was mainly a, an amazing songwriter who wrote music for like Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant and all those guys that are more popular. But then he ended up starting to record his own stuff. And Rich was just this character that um, really just captured my, my mind and imagination and my heart. And looking back, like, I really think that Rich is kind of like a modern day St. Francis, you know, the of Assisi, you know, there's, the church has like this romantic love affair with Francis of Assisi because he's so extreme. You know, he's just, the things that he did was amazing and incredible. Rich was similar in the sense that he, um, you know, he took a vow of poverty. He never got married, never had kids. He, he never made more than like the average working man in America, which was like 24,000 at some point. And he was literally making millions and 
royalties or could have been, but he set up a board of directors that gave it away to the poor and uh, mission work and Native Americans who he had a heart for. And wow, uh, the guy was just phenomenal. There's this documentary out there called Homeless Man because Rich lived very simply and very like he was just passing through. And um, I remember, and I bring that up because it just was in my heart, like Rich, Rich's music, and I started listening to his music. And, um, and so when I moved to Menlo Prez, probably the hardest part about that transition for me was the affluence of Northern California. Like from the moment I arrived, they had someone pick me up and drive me to this mansion in Atherton. And they're like, you're going to live in the guest house and you'll have your own maid, you have your own swimming pool. And I was just like, I thought I'd sold my soul to the devil. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, cause I, I was just on this, you know, I've always had a heart for, for the poor and mission work and stuff. And here I am living in this guest house in Atherton. And I was only there for a year before I moved to East Palo Alto, which is kind of the-, the That, that balances it out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is kind of the other side of the tracks. But, um, but it's important to me to mention Rich Mullins and Brendan Manning, who's an author, uh, passed away probably five, six years ago. And Brennan wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And it was really just this amazing book. I mean- a lot of Catholics probably say it's heretical, but but I think it was it was solid in the sense that God's love and grace got through to me because I think I think the, the biggest wound in my life, the biggest struggle has always been to believe that I'm lovable for whatever reason, you know, and so that's always led to, to sin and medicating and trying to feel uh, lovable, you know, the things that we do to to do that, and so uh, so Rich and Brennan were huge, and so. Went to Menlo Prez, started this young adult group called The Door. And again, it was just a totally blessed thing where volunteers came. And hundreds of people were coming on a Tuesday night, you know, service kind of thing. Um, I remember I was fairly anti-Catholic at the time. I remember preaching against Mary and what I thought the Catholic Church taught about Mary. Um, the religion of it all, you know, sure. the, the duplicitous life that it creates for people and how it just wasn't real, you know, it wasn't a complete picture. And, and so um, I, I have some tapes of myself speaking where I'm doing that. No day, kidding. Day to day to listen to that and go back. It's just like, oh. you know, just put your head in your hands and shake your head. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it was, it was still a wonderful time. I mean, I, God was using me in a sense in that way to bring people to himself and to build community and, and, um, Tell me if I'm getting off track here, Eddie. No. I'm just moving years here. So I'm like 24, 25, 26 at Menlo. And I was expecting you to be at 32 by now, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is where I kind of get lost in it all. But um, so while I was uh, about 26, I remember being really having this real sense of um, dissatisfaction with with ministry and just kind of the cult of personality that exists in those churches, you know. Um, they tend to do well if you have a, you know, a good looking, charismatic, you know, speaker and yeah. dynamic and okay, you know, but, but they're kind of built like upside down triangles. Like if the leader falls, the whole church falls, you know? And so I felt myself on that path and I felt like a lot of pressure, you know, and here I am 25, you know, and I never, I immediately was thrust into like leadership, never had a lot of time to develop and to talk about those wounds that I mentioned here do therapy and stuff that I really needed at the time. And so there became kind of this false self again. So I started to find my value in, well, how many people came back? Okay. Only 400, like I thought it'd be 500, you know, like you get caught up into the numbers and, and finding your value there. And 
ended up getting engaged to a wonderful girl and, and uh, it didn't work out after a couple of years. And that was really rough too. And so um, I just said, you know, I came to this, this point where I just said, I want to get out of ministry because the pressure got really, you know, I just felt the pressure was too much. And so, um, and I'd also had a real curiosity about business and whether or not, again, I'd be successful or not. Could I be successful in business? I had only done ministry up until that point. Yeah. And so I quit and ended up getting a job at this huge software company called Oracle in California. Never heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so like Redwood, office, Red, Redwood Shores. Shores, yeah. The big database buildings there. I was in the, the sales office in Twin Dolphin Drive and just in kind of a, a sales support role. Right on. And, yeah. um, you know, and was cutting my teeth in that. And um, it was a great experience. So that started my my path of just kind of being in business and in ministry, which would happen later. Um, it was kind of like St. Paul, you know, he, he made tents, you know, he was a tent maker, he needed to make money and, and yet he ministered all the time. And so I was still the same guy, still sharing my faith, still doing that, but just not in the ministry church context. Now, when you, when you're sharing the faith through throughout these years, is anyone saying, okay, which church should I go to? Am I just going to join you at, at Menlo Park. I mean, how did that all? Yeah, I would just out? always say just just find a good Bible teaching church. Bible teaching church. Okay. Bible teaching. That that was the criteria to be solid. It was that they're Got teaching it. from Scripture. Yeah. That they're Trinitarian. That they're you know, um, not Mormon, not Jehovah's Witness. You know what I mean? Kind of thing. Yeah. It was like. And so after my engagement ended, I, I kind of felt, you know, like I just wanted to go home. I had been gone for 10 years or so. And, and so I made, I got a, a competitor, long story short, different company called IQ Navigator. I had flown out to Denver, set up a random impromptu interview with them and they hired me on the spot and it was a lot more money. And so I made plans and moved to Denver in 2004, bought a house. Um, but like, like it always happens, like, after you experience some, some worldly success or whatever you want to call it, my heart always longed for the deeper things, you know? And so I was going to this church called Pathways and I immediately got involved in ministry there. And then they hired me on staff. And so I was just, I was back to quitting my job, back on staff now at Pathways Church, you know? And so we were pastoring in Denver and uh, only two blocks from the cathedral where Archbishop Charles Shapsey would have mass. And so I'm a single guy. I'm now 29 um i'm teaching and doing all kinds of things at pathways the uptown location we had bought a building this old jewish temple event center for a million bucks and the church is growing and thriving and um i was single i bought a home three-bedroom house and so i wanted to rent two of the bedrooms out and i was looking for a couple christian guys to rent rooms found these two young recent college graduates from the university of wisconsin S scott and mark okay so scott and mark Protestant guys, neither of them raised Catholic. I start seeing books like on the Church Fathers and St. Augustine and stuff around the house. And I'm like, Scott, what's up with this? Oh, we're just reading, you know, we're both Mark and I have been talking a lot. <laughs> they had kind of been burned at like a cult of personality kind of church in Wisconsin. And they said, we just started going to mass at the cathedral on Sunday nights. And the archbishop teaches there and it's really good. And they're like, we think you should come sometime. And I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm a pastor. No, I wouldn't do that, you know? <laughs> I'm like, guys, let me sit you down and give you like five good reasons why not to be Catholic. Let me just spare you the, the, the pain. One, Mary. You know, I'm like way hyper-exaggerated. Scripture says you have one mediator between God and man, that is Christ Jesus. 
not Mary. Two, the Pope. I'm like, you know, three, confession. Four, infant baptism, right? Five, tradition as a whole. Like, I just went down that, you know, those, those very common objections and misperceptions that people have, those barriers to entry yeah. that most evangelicals have in the church. And they were super humble when I, when I kind of came at them. Um, and they just said, just come to mass with us. You know, and I'm like, I'm not going to mass. I teach on Sunday nights, blah, blah, blah. So months go by and they're like, Hey, um, we told the archbishop about you. I'm like, what did you tell him? <laughs> they're like, we told him, you know, the guy who pastors at pathways a couple blocks away that he's Catholic. They grew up Catholic. And he's, and he told us to tell you that he wants to meet you. And I'm like, you give him a message. You tell him that if he wants to meet me, he can come to my church, you know, total chip on my shoulder. Wow. Yeah, but this is about it all started. And so, uh, and I'll make this quick. So, um, and what they didn't realize is that I had kind of already seen behind the curtain by this point, sure. right? I had already started the question, where does authority come from? Why are there churches on every corner? You know, like everyone's got a different vision, you know, who's right? Where's the truth? You know, I was seeking that, but didn't want to make that known to them because I felt like they were young and impressionable. And I wasn't convinced at that time that the Catholic church was the answer, you know? And so um, there was definitely an interest on my part to seek it, but um, a lot of pride got in the way. And so finally uh, I was off one night and they, on a Sunday night and they said, would you come to mass with us? And I went with them and I kind of endured the mass. I didn't participate. I didn't genuflect. I didn't get on my knees. I didn't do any of that. So I just sat there and observed. And I remember leaving mass with Scott and Mark on my left and my right. And Archbishop was right in front of me as he always was at the back of the church and shaking hands and greeting people. And Scott's like, this is the guy we were telling you about. This is the guy who pastors the pathways. And he kind of came at me a little strong. He's like sizing me up. Like, are you really Catholic? Like who, who baptized you or who confirmed you? And I said, well, Stafford. He's like, Cardinal Stafford baptized you? He's like, what parish? I'm like, light of the world. You know, he's just like, and he's like, well, don't you know that you're Catholic, but you're leading people out of the church. And I said, you know, I told him that I wasn't interested in being, being Catholic or following denominations or doctrines. I just wanted to follow Christ. And, and, uh, and then I said, well, and maybe you're not doing something right. That's what I told him. <laughs> I said, cause we have a lot of Catholics in our church. Sure. Yeah. And so, um, and so I, I, I was a little snarky with him. And so he, he was, you know, in a moment I was ready to leave and I kind of shook out my, put my hand out to shake his and say goodbye. And he shook my hand and I turned, and this is probably that fourth or fifth moment when I remember there was this incredible prompt, you know, grace present. And I felt his hand on my shoulder and he tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned and he said, and something about his demeanor changed. I don't know if he took his hat off, you know, the big hat he was wearing, the miter. Or miter, yeah. The miter and his staff he had handed to somebody and he just humbled himself. And he said, would you meet me at Starbucks? In this like fatherly tone that I couldn't say no to. And I said, yeah, I'll meet you at Starbucks. Oh, because you know what happened? Before I said goodbye, she says, well, why don't you come over to my house and we'll line up whatever your issues are. I want to hear what they are with the church. And I just rejected him flat out. because Just the idea of going to his house made me feel uncomfortable. And I said, no, thanks. I said, nice to meet you. And I turned to walk. And that's when sure. he put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, would you meet me at Starbucks? And I said, yeah, I'll meet you at Starbucks. And so we met at Starbucks for three hours. <laughs> Our very first meeting, we stayed for three hours. And um, he basically, in three hours, was able to ask me for forgiveness. 
which was super powerful. And I, you know, he said, we, we failed you and your generation. He said, we didn't share the gospel with you. We taught you everything else, but the most important part, which is God's love. And you went up to Boulder and didn't have that, even though you grew up in our, in our ranks, you know, and he was so humble. And he said, you know, would you, would you give me the opportunity to lay out for you what the church teaches and ask for your forgiveness for how we failed you in practice? And I just, I mean, I was just like, and I look back with tears now because he was so pastoral, but I just couldn't say no to that. I said, sure, you know, and so after three hours, you both needed to go. And, and that started a, a five or six month process where he became just a great friend. And I think all the seminarians were jealous or wondered who I was because I'd always just pull up to his house and I was just so casual with him, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I remember one time ringing his doorbell and he opened it. And I was on my knees saying, Father, forgive me for I've sinned. <laughs> you know, and so we just we smoke cigars together, drink wine, you know, talk about, you know, everything theologically that I had an issue with. And um, from Mary to the Pope to tradition to infant baptism to contraception to everything, you know, that you can think of. And, and, and so after five or six months, I had seen too much to go back. And all this time I was still working at Pathways. And I remember looking at him in this very sober moment. And I just said, what am I going to do? You know, because I had a job and a mortgage. I drove a nice BMW at the time. I just, yeah. and he just looked at me and he said, number one, you're going to trust God. And number two, I know a lot of people in Denver. And I think, you know, God's going to provide for you. And, you know, we'll find a place for you. And so when I said, yeah, I want to come back, I said, do I need to go to RCIA? He said, no, you're already confirmed. He said, we just have to have a general confession. So the next time I saw him, I, I had, you know, had a general confession with him for about an hour. And he's like, and now you can start coming back to mass and receiving the Eucharist. And so that was 2006. And then listen to this. I mean, so he not only does that, but then he, he organizes a dinner at his residence and he makes all of the heads of ministries come to listen to my story. He makes Tim Gray come. And I say makes. He invited them. And of course, <laughs> when the bishop invites you to his house for dinner, you don't say no, right? So sure. Tim Gray's there, Curtis Martin, Jay Reyes, Ted Shree, you know, all of these heads of different organizations that have sprung out of the new evangelization here. And I just told them my story and my and my reversion, you know, and 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 then he asked each of them to take me to lunch at some point over the next couple of weeks to see if there was something that resonated. And I really resonated with, with Curtis and Tim Gray both. And just, they're both so, you know, on fire for the new evangelization. But at the time, the AI was more of a graduate school, Augusta Institute, and focus was just starting. And it was all about evangelization on college campuses, which I was certainly passionate about because that's where I, I got reached, you know. But it was so late in the hiring year for Focus, it was May. And, and when, when I joined Focus, you know, Archbishop expected me to like immediately go into leadership and do teaching and all this stuff. And I just said, I don't even know how to be Catholic. I said, let me just be a Focus missionary. Even though I was older than everyone else, I was like 30, you know, at the time. And I said, I just want to be a missionary, learn how to do, do prayer and go to mass. Because I didn't know anything, you know, about being Catholic. And I was just starting that. And so, um, and so Focus said, well, the only place we have a, a spot for a male missionary in the whole country is the University of Colorado at Boulder. And so it's like, ah, like, wow, I saw God's hand on that. The one year I went to see you as a freshman where all that happened, God was 
so thorough and so generous, he sends me back to Boulder for a year to re to redo that year, to restore the year of the Locust City for my life. Unbelievable. Man. <laughs> I know. It's just at the point where you're like, you're just so good. Like this is comical, you know. And so um, and so I went to see you and, and learned how to go to daily mass and pray and, and just a great community. And so those two young men that were pivotal in my reversion is now Father Scott Jablonski, who's now in the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin, and, and Mark Ladonio, who's the director of evangelization for the Diocese of Madison as well. And so these guys were huge um, and we're still in contact today. But uh, incredible. Yeah, man. So that was that was 2006. And was it focused for eight years and started the seat conference for them, you know, and, and kind of developed that concept. And so, yeah, so it's been how many years since, but here we are. Wow. How was the confession after being away from the church for so long? You want details? No, I'm joking. No, not. <laughs> it's just kidding. No, it was, it was, uh, it was because of the friendship with him. It didn't feel like. Yeah. Confession. I think the biggest fear I had was just how much I probably left out, not intentionally, but just because. Oh, that's so a lot much, of time. So much of my, so much of my sin. Awesome though. Also though, was because I was, you know, like so many people do, like I was, I was under the influence of alcohol most of the time. Of, of, of those oh, types of things yeah all those years, so, yeah. Just so many things i forgot about you know that i was so i tried to include it all and god knows our hearts but yeah it was uh it was an hour of just cleaning the pipes you know yeah and um and so anyway that's uh that's been uh it's been a while now and like i've told you the honeymoon with the church is over you know i was so gung-ho and I, i'm home and found it but you know, I, I have found since being back, and I know we got to wrap up, that there seems to be kind of like two types of, of Christians that I meet, you know, and there are people who have a really strong relationship with Jesus, or they tend to have a really strong relationship with the church. I don't always, you know, and I know that like, it's supposed to be a both hand, and it is because you can't really, you know, yeah. have a relationship with Jesus without being, having a relationship with his body. And, and yet there's so much like church science guys, you know, that are really in depth with the, you know, and I'm not, I'm not one of those guys. I don't go deep. I'm not really interested in the politics of the church. I'm not going to hate on Pope Francis. I'm not going to, you know, um, I'm for me. And I don't want anyone to taint this for me is that my experience with the church is very poetic and it's, and it's a bit like I describe the church as like a nurturing mother or, or as like an oak tree that's solid. And I'm like this child resting up against the oak tree and resting under the shade of its branches. For me, that's the church. So does it have its problems? Of course. Does it have its sinfulness? Of course. But God has protected it for 2000 years. And I just believe it's the church that Christ started, you know, and well, and you said something I, when we first spoke, well, actually, maybe not when we first spoke, you said it recently, that once you could separate the sin of man from the church and instead of always merging yeah. them as we tend right. to do, right. you said that's where it hit you because you could apply the same criteria. Well, which to is so ironic because yeah. you know, like, like I always joke with people, if you, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> These churches are filled with people and people are filled with problems, you know, including leaders and pastors and bishops and popes and, you know, and so 
Yeah, I think we just have to, you know, one of the things that really attracted me to the church is like, you know, this is one of Rich Mullins' lines. He's, you know, he was, he almost became Catholic. He went through RCIA and it's a long story. And there's a priest on record of saying that he was going to come in because he wanted to receive the Eucharist like a week before he died in a car accident at 42 years old. And he had called the priest and said, I have to have the Eucharist. And he's already been through RCIA. But anyway, because he grew up Quaker, it's a long story. But Rich said that, he said, you know, people make such a big deal about Catholics maybe revering Mary too much. And he said, maybe, maybe Catholics don't revere Mary too much. Maybe we all revere one another too little. And I just love that, you know? And I think that like, that's something I, that enamored me in the beginning about the Catholic church was how much we revered saints and, and blesseds and venerable and hopefully one another, you know, to see Christ in you, Eddie, and, and you to see Christ in me and how we treat each other with respect, you know, like, I think that's for me what the Lord is wanting from us. That's the love, you know, in the body of Christ that he said that the world would recognize us as his disciples by, not by how we voted, not by how much, you know, you know, and so I do think that there's maybe an overemphasis on intellectual formation right now in this season of the church's life, especially in America, but you know, it's that human formation. It's that, it's that learning to, to see one another, you know, and believe well, I, 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 each other. Yeah. And historically, not just in religion, but we all tend to overcorrect for the mistakes mm -hmm. in the past. So it's yes. like, okay, now we're way right. over here. Right. Like, hey, hey, you forgot about the love. You forgot about <laughs> <Right>. that. <laughs> so, exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So they're in harmony, right? Ortho orthodoxy and orthopraxis. It's like, you know, it's, yep. it's a harmony. Social justice is not out of, out of harmony with the church teaching, you know? I mean, it's, it's, uh, corporal and spiritual works of mercy or harmony, you know? And so I think, I think blessed are the peacemakers, you know, all the people that are in the middle that are trying to bring those extremes together and to try to find common ground. I think that's a real labor of love today with the, with the tension that exists and the, the lack yeah. of harmony in our society and culture. So that's what I'm trying yeah. to do and trying to bring people together from all camps and, you know, no. good, good, good for you. That's incredible. Um, you know, I got to thank you. You, the level of transparency is incredible. Just you say it without shame. There was shame. There was yeah. the guilt, but now healthy shame too. Yeah. Yeah. And now yeah. you're talking about it. So yeah. uh, I, can I wish I could say the story ended there with my own journey of healing and woundedness and purity. Like, you know, it didn't end where I, where I stopped, you know, it, there, there's been, you know, it's, you know, Blaise Pascal has this great line. He says, God made man in his own image, and then man returned the compliment. <laughs> and we end up making God in our image. And he's cranky and fussy and conditional in his love and forgiveness. And we end up worshiping a God of our own human manufacturing. And that's not the God that Jesus of Nazareth came to reveal. So true. And so I just, you know, and so, you know, he loves me as I am and not as I should be, because yeah. none of us are as we should be. And yeah. I promise every day I try to tell myself, don't, don't shoot on yourself, you know, because, uh, <laughs> right. Because, because, um, you know, it is, it is grace. So, so it's, it's still a journey and thankfully his love is patient and kind. Um, I've heard your story a little bit, Eddie, it sounded like a, like a, ever since this time, it's never really reared its ugly head again. And I'm like, God bless you. You know, like, that's awesome. It's not my experience. I wish it was, there's a holy jealousy there, but 
you know, for me, it's been like, I'm like the guy who Jesus healed his eyes and you can kind of see, but not really. And then he's got to do it again. Of course. Well, that's, that's, that's you know? human, human nature. The one more thing right. I want to mention is, yeah. you know, a lot of us will talk about, oh man, can you believe the sin within the church and the sin we're talking about, of course, is the stuff that has been exposed. Someone has been caught doing something what we forget when we're making those comments is what if you were turned inside out and all of a sudden everything, uh, every thought you had, everything right. you just did yesterday was for the whole world to see how many people would be commenting about <laughs> the sin out there. That does not, this is funny. It does not ever excuse the actions, but it puts things in perspective because I still think it's an easy out when people uh, kind of leave. It's like a mic drop for them. Like, I'm not going to join a church that behaves oh, in this I, way. Yeah, it is kind of a drop out, you know? Well, it, it for some people it is. And yeah, I just keep coming back to that. Like, yeah, they always, you know, the line is like, well, it's full of hypocrites. And I'm like, we're all hypocrites. Yeah. Because we can't live up to the, the gospel we can't. we preach, you know? And it's really, it's really grace. And we've talked about that a lot tonight. Like you're, you're indebted. Indebtedness is part of being a child of God, you know, and, and there's nothing you can do to repay him for what he's done for us, you know? And so you live with that sense of, are you free to give and receive? That's how I define real wealth. You know, it's not how much you have, it's how free are you to give and receive? And, and, um, you know, part of that is being able to receive grace, you know, it's hard to do It is when God wants to give that to you. But um, yeah, it's not about, it's not about being perfect. It's about being in process. And, yeah. you know, he, he never changes. We're the ones who change. Yeah. You know? So well, well cool. hey, thanks so much, man, for having me on. Yeah. This what a, what a pleasure, man. Thank you for uh, taking us on that ride. That's something else, man. <laughs> something else. <laughs> So everyone, hopefully you uh, can share this video, like it, comment, please. Um, I'm just so grateful for the people that keep coming into my life uh, for this show. Um, it means a whole heck of a lot. And I, and I pray that it just continues to touch lives. So until next time, take care and God bless.